0: Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Research Project Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Language and Japanese War Heritage. This week, we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Root, senior lecturer in film studies at the University of Greenwich, to discuss samurai in cinema. Together, Jonathan and I took a look at the many faces of samurai in Japanese cinema and their global influence on film producers. Jonathan also focuses on Zatoichi, the lone blind swordsman that has greased film and TV in Japan and elsewhere for over 50 years. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Jonathan. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today.
1: Good morning. Thank you very much for
0: having me. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there?
1: Um, yeah. At the moment, um, my interests involve the distribution and exhibition of Asian and global cinema across the world, particularly through digital and physical home media, as well as writing and researching about Japanese films and media in particular. I have been researching Japanese cinema since I was an undergraduate at the University of Winchester. There were no Asian film specialists at that university when I got interested in this subject, mainly by seeing particular Japanese horror films and action films that were being released in the UK quite a lot in the 2000s, um, such as through the notorious Tartan Asia Extreme label. So I ended up teaching myself Japanese film history so that I could submit a dissertation on the film directing career of Takeshi Kitano. Um, Following that, my interest in Japanese cinema took me to the University of East Anglia to study my MA and PhD. My doctoral thesis ended up being on the distribution and marketing of Japanese films in the UK through DVD. Although opportunities never came up for me to travel to Japan and study there, despite my interest, my PhD work from 2010 to 2013 instead analysed the companies that bring these films to the UK, which at the time wasn't being studied a lot. Japanese cinema has be- has historically been analysed through textual analysis in terms of the film's content, and this is still done uh, a lot to this day. However, this can lead, in, in my opinion, and some other scholars agree w- with me too on this, this can lead to an emphasis on what makes the film uniquely Japanese in contrast to other films, which verges on stereotyping and Orientalism. I was instead interested in covering what companies and practices are bringing Japanese and Asian films to the UK, which also led me to understand some of the production context in Japanese film and media industries. Um, Since my PhD research, parts of it have been published, as have some edited collections that are co-published with other scholars on related subjects, such as home media distribution around the world, and a recent collection on horror cinema titled New Blood. This all happened while I gained teaching experience in higher education, and now I'm senior lecturer um, in film studies at Greenwich. Um, Most recently, I've published a book on the global impact of the Japanese film franchise linked to Zatoichi the Blind Swordsman. Zatoichi is a fictional blind masseur who wanders from town to town in Tokugawa era Japan, specifically sometime in the 19th century. Uh, He likes to gamble, which can get him into trouble, but he just so happens to also be a master swordsman and he hides a sword in his cane. So from that simple premise, uh, there's been 29 Japanese films made about that character, um, as well as 100 TV episodes and numerous imitations around the world. And the character is mostly known for being played by the actor Shintaro Katsu. Zatoichi is a long term interest of mine as I started writing some essays about the character of Zatoichi actually back in Winchester as an undergrad. Um, Again, I could not get to Japan before the book came out, but in 2019, I was lucky enough to meet um, scholars from Indonesia, specifically Hikmat, Dharmawan and Ekiya Manjaya. They were very helpful with some knowledge that I was able to put into the book, as well as meeting scholars at the Maison de la Culture du Japon in Paris, who helped me to confirm some of the Japanese production history of the films and also how the character was homaged around the world from the 1970s onwards. So, though Zatoichi is a particular type of wandering swordsman and drifter character from Japanese literature and popular cinema, his films of course overlap with depictions of samurai, which uh, I know
0: is what you wanted to focus on today. Excellent, thank you. So, uh, let's begin by discussing the iconic historical figure of the samurai. These prestigious military officers of the Middle Ages are today amongst the centrepieces of Japanese iconography. However, much like European medieval knights, they are often used as symbols of chivalry and honor, despite their historical counterparts being violent authoritarians. How did they come to have such a favorable and dominating presence in Japanese cinema?
1: Okay, so um much writing on Japanese cinema has focused on the impact of the films of Akira Kurosawa, the impact they've had, and those of other directors just before and just after him. I just wanted to add a point in there that there has been some more recent scholarship and archival research that's come to light just after my book publication is when I became aware of it. There's an interesting YouTube channel that touches on this called Kin Emotions which shows that there are actually several examples of silent films from Japan in the 1920s that do focus on samurai characters and lone lone swordsmen. And that's long before what is called the golden age of Japanese cinema in terms of the 1950s and 60s. And that's when Akira Kurosawa is particularly seen to have his massive influence on Japanese cinema. What both the earlier silent films and the later popular films show is that the samurai is a long recognized character from both Japanese history and popular culture. And not just in Japan, but all around the world, it's kind of really no surprise that the samurai characters had this longevity, as before they start appearing on screen, they were depicted in stage plays, which is, of course, is what the earliest moving image cameras were used for around the world, filming stage plays until filmmakers experimented more with editing, location shooting, and other filmmaking conventions. Also, the popularity of the samurai has much to do with the distinctive look of the character. I would think, uh, I'd hope most people agree with that. Um, Though their dress may not be much beyond a a standard kimono, if you're familiar with medieval Japanese clothing, uh, most samurai characters are seen with one, if not two, swords. Usually the katana and the wakizashi, the two blades they normally carry, and the the wakizashi is often uh, depicted as being shorter than the katana. They look like they're always dressed and ready for battle, and this is often what is expected of them in their on-screen depictions. However, the reality was often a lot different, and some of your listeners may already be aware of this. If a samurai or action film was set before the medieval Tokugawa period, from roughly 1600 to 1853, where isolation and peace was enforced throughout all of Japan then the film is more likely to depict some historically accurate information as prior to 1600, of course, was the famous Warring States period with various lords, clans and samurai fighting over territories and some intended to eventually rule over all of Japan. Um, But a large proportion of Japanese films involving samurai are instead set in the Tokugawa period. The historical reality for most samurai at that time is that they transitioned from becoming warriors though many still train at sword and martial arts at schools, sorry, or dojos, as they're called in Japanese, and um, they keep their swords during this time, even though it's largely seen as a period of peace, or enforced as a period of peace anyway. Uh, However, most samurai retainers effectively become administrative employees for their lords in this period, and their lords, of course, also known as the Japanese term uh, the daimyo. Um, They might be bodyguards or advisors if they are particularly trustworthy or they could just be in charge of finances, staffing, food or something else in the daimyo's property or clan territory. As for films set at this time, though they're often set in the Tokugawa era, they often involve characters who find an excuse to draw their sword or who are drawn into violent situations against their will. Sometimes these characters can be samurai such as in the case of 13 Assassins, where samurai loyal to their daimyo take revenge against another clan leader who has committed murder and hasn't been punished by the shogun. Both the 2010 and 1963 films of this story are heavily influenced by an earlier story, that of the Chushingura or the 47 ronin, where a lord's... Uh, 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 a uh, lord's um, samurai retainers become masterless after his death. That's uh, what the word ronin is usually associated with, masterless samurai. But the 47 ronin slowly plot revenge against the rival lord responsible for his death. Though this tale has been filmed many times in film and TV, Chushingura has roots in literature and theatre, and um, there's been some historical research on the roots of the story as well. Um, so that was before film and television. And this is also the case for a lot of other popular samurai films in terms of many adaptations are adaptations of established and popular stories in novels and stage plays. This is also the case for Zatoichi, as he first turned up in a short story by Kan Shimozawa. Another important contrast to note is the term often used for these films, samurai films. It is quite a loaded term, as I've mentioned, when it's used in Western countries. It implies we are going to see a lot of sword action and bloody violence on screen. As for japanese films that include samurai in their stories they're actually made up of a broad variety of genres from action films which i'll explain a bit more about in a moment um, to romances and comedies to political thrillers war epics and even gangster films many of the first yakuza films were period stories highlighting how gangsters started as gamblers during the tokugawa era but when some amassed enough wealth and power they became very influential sometimes as much as clan leaders and shogun officials. This also takes us back to my research on Zatoichi, as he is a gambler, as well as a blind master and swordsman, and all of these positions he holds, at least his official ones, not his hidden sword skills, the official positions that he holds in Tokugawa society are very low and looked down upon in the caste society of that time. And that is one of the reasons that he travels from town to town. He has no other means of making a living, and his murderous skills often mean that people fear him. The other point I wanted to make is that the Japanese term for this broad range of genres involving samurai or the medieval in general is Geki, often literally translated as period drama. When a film is more focused on action, blood and sword fights, it fits into a particular category known as shambara. This is the onomatopoeic word in Japanese for swords clanging. And it is this particular category of films that is often mentioned as being established by Akira Kurosawa, especially following his 1962 film, Sanjuro, which ends with a fountain of blood spraying from a defeated swordsman, which is a stylized effect that has been used in many, many
0: films since. see. Thank you. So, um, the term samurai, as you've just kind of covered, uh, is, is quite broad, with many subcategories appearing in the cinema. The impoverished massless ronin samurai of Hadakidi in Seven Samurai, or the powerful warring states period warriors in their fearsome armour as seen in Ran. Could you run through a few of the most popular tropes and genres of samurai film?
1: Yes, sure. I will do as best as I can, though I'm sure there are many other film historians and Japanese historians who might say I've maybe overlooked a few things here, but as I said, I'll do the best I can. So where I wanted to start was the the armoured samurai stems from the warring states or Sengoku era prior to the Tokugawa era. In addition to this, I recently learned through much published historical research on the subject that during the latter decades of the Sengoku era, there were also employed foot soldiers as well as just samurai warriors, so there could be the perception that all, all warriors in this period were samurai, that wasn't necessarily the case. The, some of the foot soldiers were known as ashigaru, and they wielded swords or spears. There was also the tanagashima soldiers who were armed with guns, uh, particularly an early form of rifle known as the arquebus. Though this is not newly discovered history, it was new information to me, and I found this very interesting, as it contrasts with a lot of stereotypical depictions of samurai swordsmen and warriors in Japanese cinema. Most depictions of early guns in Japanese cinema are linked to settings and times that are transitioning from the Tokugawa era to the Meiji era, where former samurai are often being trained to use rifles. This is seen in both the um, Tom Cruise film, which I know was quite popular in, in both UK, the USA, and, and also Japan, um, the Tom Cruise film, The Last Samurai, and also a trilogy of Japanese films that were made at a similar time, Yoji Yamada's Samurai Trilogy, uh, known through the films Twilight Samurai from 2002, Hidden Blade from 2004, and Love and Honor from 2006. Um uh, so that's that's where I've seen depictions of guns in these films as as the samurai transition to the modernized um, uh, latter half of the 19th century in Japan. Most depictions of samurai warriors on screen seem to overlook that the arquebus was used in, in uh, earlier periods in Japanese history, particularly by the forces of Oda Nobunaga in the 16th century. The Armoured Samurai instead has been portrayed in many films and TV shows, though, despite what I've just said there. uh, The most famous depictions are perhaps in Kurosawa's later films of Kagemusha and Ran, and also in some of his earlier films in um, Throne of Blood from 1957, his famous adaptation of Macbeth, and The Hidden Fortress from 1958. But another interesting historical contrast, uh, at least I find this interesting, I hope other people do, is that the um, famous samurai armor later became purely decorative rather than being used for battle. This was the case by the uh, later decades of the Tokugawa era, particularly in the 19th century. The majority of films known in the West as samurai films or in Japan as shambra either portray lone swordsmen who are often ronin. The ronin may have once been retainers to a local lord, but the lord could have been killed or executed, or the samurai could have left their employment for some reason. There are countless examples of these ronin, from the 1920s silent films I mentioned, to Toshiro Mifune's portrayal of such characters throughout the 1960s and 70s, as well as those made by Raizo Ichikawa in the 1950s and 60s. Ichikawa was a rival of Shintaro Katsu at the film studio Daiei. But so many actors have also played ronin since, from the numerous depictions of the Chushengura tale to very recent films, such as the five very popular Rurouni Kenshin films, which are on Netflix at the moment now, as it happens, and also the 2019 film Iwane Sword of Serenity, which will be showing in UK cinemas in 2022, thanks to the Japan Foundation this year's touring film programme. But some wandering swordsmen are not necessarily ronin. Zatoichi is one of these characters who perhaps fits better in the category of mono, which means uh, drifter stories. Zatoichi is just a blind masseur and gambler who also decides to learn sword fighting so he can defend himself. His name literally means blind one, Zato no Ichi, as it is often pronounced in the films. Uh, he was never a samurai, and he often has to fight corrupt samurai in these Zatoichi films. He aligns more closely with the Yakuza. And this point helps to illustrate that some of the earliest Yakuza films were period action films known as Ninkyo Eiga. Uh, the Yakuza were armed with swords during the Tokugawa and Meiji eras. So these characters could also become wandering swordsmen as well in other um, uh, stories published in Japanese literature, as well as film,
0: those filmed for uh, film and TV. Thank you for that comprehensive summary. So the subject of your research is quite particular. So Zatoichi, as you've mentioned, the blind warrior covered in your book, The Paths of Zatoichi, who consistently features over 50 years of Japanese film and TV. What about this particular character stood out for you in the Lone Swordsman film genre?
1: Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question, especially coming at the end of this uh, process of getting the book out. Um, I think it was a combination of things that got me interested initially. Uh, The character is fascinating, no matter how fantastical the premise, I think. A blind man who is also a master swordsman. And the first film about him that I saw was the version directed by Takeshi Kitano, released in 2003. Um, Through that film, initially, I became fascinated by Kitano's career, As he started as a stage comedian, became a TV celebrity, and then he moved on to acting, directing, and numerous other ventures. He's even a renowned artist now these days. There seems to be nothing he hasn't done. He's a fascinating figure to talk about, but maybe for another day. uh, I'll try and keep us focused on samurai. But researching his career and his take on Zatoichi led me to read a lot of the English language scholarship on Japanese cinema, and often specific information, of course, about Gidaigeki. In this English language research, the Zatoichi films aren't actually discussed a lot. They are briefly mentioned, apart from one or two titles an author might think to be significant, but they are quickly summarised as formulaic and then almost dismissed as the writers move on to other case studies, um, despite also acknowledging that they were popular at the cinema at the time. I first read this coverage of the Zatoichi films around 2003, 2004, and uh, later I was able to watch the 2008 and 2010 Japanese films, which also attempted to reboot the character after Kitano's film. Um, But they met little commercial success, those later films. I then realised for how long the character had been on screen and was starting to become aware of other countries' films that have been influenced by the character. Um, but nothing was really changing in terms of Japanese film scholarship, especially in the English language, concerning Gidai Geki. No one seemed to be studying Zatoichi in depth, so it became a topic I wanted to explore. As I could see, there was over 50 years of cinema history that could be uncovered here, simply by looking at this one character and their influence within Japan and around the world. What this study has also allowed me to investigate and provide a contrast to is the assumption that these films were simply exploitative for the sake of it. Like a lot of Shambara films uh, made in the 1970s, the later Zatoichi films did sometimes become bloody and even sexually exploitative. But almost all Japanese film studios were starting to make films like this in the 70s in an effort to keep cinema audiences interested and kind of uh, fight against the, the erosion of television that was being had on film audiences. Um, but this is not how the series started when the studio Daiei started making them. They were aimed at a broad audience and they were very popular. They were respectable films made on a mid to high budget at the time. And the budget actually increased as Shintaro Katsu's popularity grew. It was only later that they were associated with exploitation cinema, especially as they started to be distributed first on poor quality VHS tapes outside of Japan and then later on to DVDs. This was because they were being marketed outside of Japan in a similar fashion to other bloody martial arts films um, from East Asian countries. Thankfully, by 2013, the DVD label Criterion acknowledged their historical importance and uh, put the first 25 films into a very impressive box set um, in the USA, which a few years later also became available in the UK. I see.
0: So one of our first episodes on the podcast discussed Akira Kurosawa's influence on Western cinema and vice versa. Do we see a particular influence of Zatoichi in cinema outside of Japan?
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, as it happens. Yes, I'm familiar with that podcast and, and Lola Martinez knows very much about this. She was also a great help when I was able to meet her with my research. So The short answer is yes. I'll I'll go into some more detail in a moment, but to give a quick summary, first of all, Zatoichi's influence can be seen in Italian spaghetti westerns, Taiwanese cinema, Indonesian cinema, and American cinema, both in terms of low-budget and independent fan-made work, as well as recent blockbuster titles from America. As said, I'll give more detail in a moment, but or also just to give you an idea where I'm going, I believe this partly stems from the popularity of the character, but also the star persona of Shintaro Katsu. So first of all, though there is not any acknowledgement in the film's credits or any archival evidence that I've seen, the 1971 spaghetti Western blind man is largely understood to be an homage to Zatoichi. However, this time, as you can probably guess from it being a Western, the blind protagonist is a skilled marksman rather than a sword fighter. It's also famous for having, bizarrely enough, a Ringo Starr cast as one of the villains when he <laughs> did star in a few films in the 1970s. Um, there would also be a later American Western made for HBO that would have a blind gunslinger as its hero. And this was titled Blind Justice from 1994. And that film clearly borrows a few plot elements from some Zatoichi films and other Shambara films, such as the hero having to save babies and stopping bandits from stealing silver. Um, the next country that pays homage to Zatoichi, or perhaps should I say the, uh, in, in actual fact the character is completely copied, this happens in Taiwan. And this was brought about initially by Dai and the filmmaking team behind Zatoichi, as well as filmmakers from Hong Kong, because also in 1971, the film Zatoichi meets the One-Armed Swordsman is released. So by this time, Shintaro Katsu has his own production company, Katsu Pro, and Dai is commissioning him to make the Zatoichi films. But Dai's finance is about to collapse. So as so many film companies have tried throughout history, Instead of, um, you know, quietly fading away, they decide to go for broke and they try to make this film as spectacular as possible. Though it is shot in Japan, they managed to convince Jimmy Wang Yu to come over from Hong Kong and portray his famous one-armed swordsman character so that he can battle Zatoichi on screen. This also leads to a famous myth about this film, which I have to explain through some minor store spoilers, but if you look at the film series online, the Zatoichi film series, you can guess the outcome because this isn't the last Zatoichi film in the series. Supposedly, there is an alternative cut of the film that was released in Hong Kong where the one-armed swordsman defeats Zatoichi, but no archive in East Asia or other parts of the world has been able to find this cut since this was first mentioned. The only version that has been released on DVD and Blu-ray has Zatoichi win at the end. And also in Taiwan, uh, martial arts filmmakers uh, saw how popular the Zatoichi films were and the crossover with the one-armed swordsman and decided to make their own blind swordsman films. So because of this, I believe that the alternate cut of the fight with the one-armed swordsman is most likely a myth, but I will be very pleasantly pleased if someday it turns out that I'm wrong on that point. So we'll wait and see. Um, there are famous stories throughout film history of of alternate um, cuts of films being found somewhere where people had forgotten they'd been stored. So it could happen in the future. We'll wait and see on that. But um, as I said, um, there's a bit more to the, the story of Zatoichi's um, influence in Taiwan. In the 1970s, what the um, filmmakers there did, they basically find a lookalike actor who is credited under several names. I had to address this in the book. He's, he's known by several names, so it's difficult to know who he is for certain. He looks like Shintaro Katsu, but he's definitely not him. He's widely credited mostly as Sing Lung. They suddenly decide to explain that Zatoichi was captured from in the in the story of the film. Sorry, this is. They decide to suddenly explain that Zatoichi was captured from China as a young boy, and now he's returned home and gets into various scrapes in nineteenth-century uh, China. Um, there weren't very many uh, of these films made, and to be completely honest, they make less sense as they go along. Zatoichi eventually becomes a supporting player in other characters' stories in these Taiwanese martial arts films until he is suddenly killed off without any explanation, in a film called Trust and Brotherhood from 1972. And again, I would hypothesize this is because the local audience were maybe getting confused with the official Zatoichi films, which were still being released in cinemas around East Asia. So they were probably getting confused with these lower-budget knockoffs coming from Taiwan. So, however, the comic book author Ganis Teha from Indonesia had already taken a lot of inspiration from Zatoichi in 1967. This is when his comic character, Sibuta, which literally means the blind, is first published. This character is not just a blind warrior with a staff. He also has a pet monkey and he can cast spells against his foes. So instead of being an imitation, this character is more of an homage and a blend of Indonesian folklore. And um, he becomes very popular in Indonesian comics published from 1967 onwards. The character then also gets adapted into films from the 1970s onwards, and is most often portrayed by the actor Ratno Timur. It seemed to be successful as a character for him throughout the 70s and 80s, as it did for Shintaro Katsu, who ended up playing the character not just on Japanese film screens, but up until the end of the TV series in 1979. So after that TV series finished, Katsu's career would actually flounder quite a bit, And even a belated comeback as Zatoichi in 1989 could not save it. That film unfortunately flopped. But interestingly enough, it has been re-released, Katsu's last Zatoichi film, simply just titled in most countries as Zatoichi the Blind Swordsman. Funnily enough, has been re-released several times on DVD and Blu-ray around the world um, over the last couple of decades. But that same year, going back to 1989, there is the first direct acknowledgement of Zatoichi in American cinema, with the low budget, but kind of fun, if I'm honest, uh, action vehicle called Blind Fury, which stars the late, great Rip Gahoya. Now, Blind Fury is interesting. It directly credits the script of the um, 17th Zatoichi film, Zatoichi Challenged, which it largely follows. Um, it, the big difference is, of course, with this film is it all takes place in America in 1989. Here, a character called Nick Parker is explained to be a Vietnam vet. During that war, he was blinded um, in a helicopter crash and taken in by a local tribe who taught him to use a sword. So there is some problematic Asian stereotyping and cultural appropriation as Vietnam is essentially swapped in for Japanese swords fighting or kind of almost made to look one and the same in this film. It's a bit, it's a bit strange. Um, but as I've said, the film still kind of has its own certain charm. It's also a later illustration of a common sight in 1980s American cinema in terms of the appropriation of Japanese and Asian popular culture, meaning in lots of other action films from that decade, there's actually a surprising amount of samurai swords and ninjas turning up. But this is the the stereotyped, of course, depiction of ninjas, Um, as I'm sure your listeners may already be aware through some research on this. Actual ninjas or shinobi in Japanese history did not wear black. There were also, of course, uh, later homages to Zatoichi, which I cover in my book. There was the Netflix series Daredevil from 2015 to 2018, where the main character is mentored by a blind swordsman called Stick, who is also a character introduced into the Marvel comics in the 1980s. There was also the Star Wars film Rogue One from 2016. Here, Donnie Yen plays Chirrut Imwe, who fights off stormtroopers with his staff and martial arts skills. And Donnie Yen has said many times that it was his idea to make the character blind, as he was a big fan of the Zatoichi films because they showed in the cinemas in Hong Kong that he visited as a young boy while he was growing up there. The particular global influence of Zatoichi is also paralleled by the appropriation of Japanese and Asian popular culture, which was very prominent in the 1980s, as I mentioned earlier. This was also indirectly, I believe, in part due to the influence of Shintaro Katsu, Um, because in 1980 the film Shogun Assassin was released and this film is quite famous now amongst film fans and maybe some Japanese popular culture specialists as well. It's famous for being edited together from the first two Lone Wolf and Cub films. These Japanese titles are adapted from a long-running manga series about a former shogun samurai executioner forced to wander the road alone with his infant son while he seeks vengeance against those who killed his wife. Shogun Assassin edited together the first two films, dubbed the dialogue into English and also included a new musical soundtrack. It was a commercial success in American cinemas in the 1980s. It's been re-released in cinemas many times over the years, and it's been re-released numerous times on DVD and Blu-ray. Both Lone Wolf and Cub and also Shogun Assassin have also been homaged in many films from Kill Bill to the wonderful mockumentary, I'm a big fan of this film, Top Not Detective, that's very much inspired by the aesthetics of the the Lone Wolf and Cub films. The link to Shintaro Katsu comes from the fact that his brother, Thomas Aburo Wakayama, played the lead role of Ogami Ito in the Lone Wolf and Cub films. Not only this, but Shintaro Katsu produced the films through his production company and the film studio Toho distributed them into japanese cinemas there's also a link there taking us back to kurosawa because toho have always historically released all of akira kurosawa's films so um taking us back to katsu though i believe without katsu's efforts to make the lone wolf and cub films they would not have gone on to have the cultural impact that they had with western audiences
0: amazing to think of the uh, spread that a single character can have culturally yeah so, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, film studies scholars tend to approach samurai film through directors such as Kurosawa and broad genres rather than individual recurring characters such as Zatoichi. You argue that this allows a better perspective or path for understanding the transnational influence of films through remakes. Can you expand on that for us?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I would say my approach adds another perspective to previous scholars' work, which I I do my best not to dismiss in my own book, but I say I'm trying to supplement that with my own research. There's been a lot of important research on directors like Kurosawa and studies of other period films involving samurai. I think where the study of Zatoichi fits into this can also be described by situating it within the wider field of film studies in general. A lot of film studies scholarship has tended to focus on particular directors' careers, especially those that are deemed to be critically acclaimed or artistically important. What has been commercially successful at cinemas or with large audiences may not have always been studied in the past. Although in the last two decades, I do have to say there's been an increasing amount of research on action films from all over the world, as well as horror films, blockbusters and um, productions from companies like Disney, these things are starting to be studied more and more. I would also say that Japanese popular cinema has also not been studied as much, though animated films and adaptations of anime and manga are now investigated quite a lot too. What I'm getting to is the point that I mentioned earlier about my reasons for studying Zatoichi. A lot of writing on these films often dismiss them as formulaic and repetitive but they were also commercially successful for many years, especially up until the DIA studio went bankrupt. It is also important to understand why these repetitive and formulaic films are so popular, so much that they are imitated and homaged across the world. In the first chapter of my book, I make reference to the work of Derek Johnson on franchising, which he argues is important to study so that we can understand why shared culture is reproduced across the world. Lola Martinez also makes this point about Kurosawa's films and how many have been remade around the world. And those at which he may not be as recognized around the world as, say, King Kong or Godzilla. Those characters have also been studied in order to understand their glo- uh, global cultural impact. And I have briefly mentioned this aspect in the book, too, through the research of Cynthia Erb on Hong Kong and the many publications of well, so many scholars that have written on Godzilla. But I particularly focus on the work of William Sutsui there. It can be too easy to say that all forms of popular culture become popular around the world for the same reasons. In fact, I would say that's probably more of an assumption. Studying characters that have been recognisable around the world for over many years can help to reveal the reality in terms of the impact popular culture can have, um, specifically through the formats of film and television. Japanese film and TV has been found to be very influential over many years, and my study of Zatoichi illustrates another example of this. Partially, this is down to the unique traits of the character of Zatoichi. In other ways, my book illustrates how this is down to the actions of certain stars and filmmakers
0: like Shintaro Katsu. Thank you for answering all of my questions, Jonathan. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you are currently working on? Uh, Sure.
1: I recently helped contribute to the Japan Foundation Touring Film Program. Um, so you'll see a few of my words um, in that program if you attend one of their screenings for 2022. Um, also, in 2019, I attended the Women in East Asia um, was, sorry, Women in East Asian Cinema Conference, and um, that work is uh, the work that I presented there was largely based on my Zatowiczy research, and I'm working on a book chapter for an edited collection that's come out of that conference. My chapter highlights how female characters and stars were often marginalised throughout the Zatowiczy series and that provides an insight into views of stardom and studio production practice in the Japanese film industry at the time, specifically I focus on the era when Shintaro Katsu was prolific in the 60s and 70s. Hopefully, I'll be appearing on some more podcasts in 2022. Um, I've heard a lot more people are interested in the book, which is great to hear, and this year, 2022, is also the 60th anniversary of the franchise. Um, and I've just started reading up on a very broad subject area, translation studies, as I'm also quite interested in analyzing the companies and practices behind the subtitling and dubbing of films and TV shows from Japan and other countries. Again, I I may find out I'm wrong here, but at the moment, I don't believe this has been researched much in terms of labor, working practices, and the current influence of streaming platforms. So I hope to shed some light on that in the future. Excellent. Well,
0: any film at all have lots of recommendations to take from this episode. Thank you for joining me again today, Jonathan. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Oliver. You can find a link to see Jonathan's website in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninnorwich.org or on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Aya Home from the University of Manchester to discuss family planning, looking at how Japan's history of medical science has influenced policy and its impact on the current aging population crisis. We hope you'll join us then.